Are you tired of being broke? Do you struggle with debt? Are you ready for a change? If so, you found the right place. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. My name is Eric, and I invite you to join me and my co-hosts, Keith and Nick, as we reveal the truth about how to succeed financially. Whether you're just beginning your journey or have many miles behind you, we're here to help. If you would like to follow or contact us, visit propersense.com. Welcome to the Proper Sense Podcast, where money doesn't talk, it works. I'm Keith. I'm joined today with both of my co-hosts, Nick and Eric. Um, today we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more uh, about uh, mortgages generally. But before we kind of jump into the the topic itself, I'd like to check in with you guys. Eric, I haven't heard from you in a week. How's things over in Arizona? Things are good. It's getting hot, getting real uh, real toasty down here, but uh, can't complain. Nick, how's your world? They're uh, in the adjacent city. I'm half checked out. I was thinking about Eric last week in Mexico. Eric, did you get the Juarez squirts? Uh, they just started yesterday, so I've probably got another couple days. I thought I always referred to it as Montezuma's Revenge. Are we talking about two different squirting things? No, I think we're on the same page. So real quick on going to Mexico. I've been to Mexico once and went to Cabo for a wedding. I think we were at the same wedding. I won't say the person, but I always feel like I'm a target there, like not to get robbed or anything, but to get shaken down. Like they just want to fleece you. The minute you get off the plane, they're trying to sell you timeshares. You don't know what's going on. I mean, did you have the same experience? Well, it starts the moment you walk out and you get your bags in the Cabo airport because you have to walk through the timeshare sales pitch room. Um, And for those who haven't been, it can be a little overwhelming when they start coming up and lying to you and tell you that they're your taxi ride and they're the the person that's going to get you to a hotel. Uh, but yes, I, I've done a lot of traveling, uh, been to far out places, kind of away from tourists, been in a lot of tourist areas. And that's probably, you know, one of my biggest complaints is that especially in areas where the difference in quality of life between a first world country and maybe more of a third world country, there's such a big difference that you become a little bit more of a mark. And, you know, even things my wife it would always get annoyed because I would get frustrated in Italy when they would put down the bread because that was they do that for tourists. They, they throw these things on the plate or on the table. They give you bread and olives and all that other stuff as if it's like chips at a mes- Mexican restaurant here. But it's just additional items that then they tack onto your bill where anybody from there knows immediately that's what's going on. And so they don't bother. So I've always been. I, I understand what you're saying. I've always been a little bit hesitant about the shakedown aspect when you're traveling. And it's, uh, it's, it's really any place that you go abroad, right? And, and sp- talking about getting fleeced, the worst I've ever seen it uh, was in Cairo when I spent a week there in, in Egypt. And uh, that is the worst place to get touristy trapped. And if you're with somebody without a strong conviction, like my traveling buddy, uh, my, my college roommate, uh, who, who it's hard for him to say no, it can be it can be a weird place to be. At one point, they had him on a camel, had the camel uh, standing up. Now he's 15 feet off the ground and wouldn't let him off the camel until until he finally paid him. So yeah, each place has their own way to kind of get you. 
What's perhaps most confounding about the Cabo thing is those people are there for a reason because it obviously works. So my question would be like the next level up, what type of person steps off the plane flying from, I would assume, a colder place to a vacation place and immediately secures a timeshare? Like they, they, they buy a timeshare. Like what the hell? Well, the timeshare thing, especially in Mexico, it's a game for a lot of people because they'll usually give you something of value and the longer you hold out, the more value they'll give you. Um, and, and so there's a lot of people that do it out of, they do it every time they go. They go, oh, I'm gonna go talk to the timeshare people because I'm gonna get a free car rental for the weekend or I'm going to get a three-day trip to do this. And the thing is for them, it, it works, right? So for every 10 person or 10 people that are there to get a free car ride or to get a free taxi or to get a uh, free cruise somewhere, there's one that buys it. And whether it's because they show up after having eight tequila shots in the afternoon or they just are intimidated by the process, which a lot of people are, and they, and they will do anything to make it end. And so they just go through the motions. And that's why those timeshare contracts are written so ironclad because all they got to do is get your signature on the page in the beginning and then you're at least paying massive fees to get out of it so it's a numbers game talking about buying stuff let's jump into the topic here we're going to talk about refinancing when to do it when it's a good idea when it's not uh and the terms and how that all plays into the deal so let's just jump in boys you both got mortgages right now and i think nick and i talked about this in the past um, have you guys done any refinancing with the interest rates where they're at now? And what was sort of your thought process behind doing that, if that was in fact the case? So I refinanced March of 2020, and I did it because rates went down. So that's nine times out of 10, unless you just have a horrible mortgage. The reason why someone would refinance would be to get a lower rate, to save on interest cost, and to lower their monthly payment. So that's what I did. Uh, I got a 20-year note, which was which was fine. I, I actually tried to refinance again a few months back. Uh, well, not a few months back anymore, but during the whole COVID uh, deal where the stock market cratered, interest rates went straight down, bond yields went straight down. So I tried to do it again, but I was not a W-2 employee. I, I started a business. We changed our structure not to get too deep in the weeds, but it's really hard to get a traditional mortgage or a refi if you don't have a typical W-2 job. So to answer your question, yes, I refinanced like a year ago. And I did the same, similar timing. I think it was um, April or May of, of 2020. Same same reasoning. It was the, the rates were so low. They were just scraping at the bottom. Every week, you didn't think they could get any lower and they were just edging down, edging down, edging down. And I had been wanting for a while to move to a 15 anyways. I wanted it a little bit more in line when my kids were going to graduate. And, you know, the ultimate difference, we, we'd switched from a, a 30 to a 15. And because of the rate adjustment, I think our total cost went up 180 bucks a month. Um, and, and it was really nice to start seeing every one of those payments just start chunking out the principal afterwards. So... Same, same mentality. And Nick, I completely understand what you're talking about. We lived for close to a decade without either one of us being a W-2 employee. And it's just hoop after hoop after hoop when you're trying to do anything in the traditional finance world and you're not writing a check for it. 
because everything's based on how much income you have, how much money do you make, how much can you service your debt. It's not based on, you know, you can have somebody that makes $150,000 and doesn't have a pot to piss in, but somebody over here who has half a million dollars in assets or more, but doesn't have a W-2 form, and it's a nightmare for that person to try to actually get approved for a loan. That makes a lot of sense, Judge. Yeah, I've never understood that, but uh, I've, I've definitely lived through it. Yeah, similarly, uh, we've recently gone through a refinance as well. Like you, Eric, I wanted to drop mine from a 30 and get down to a 15-year a uh, at a fixed rate, which is what we did. We did a no-cash-out refi, which simply means we didn't pull any of the equity that we have in the home out at that time. Many of you know, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm in the middle of purchasing a bunch of land over in Camas and building what we're calling our forever home on it, or at least our 15 to 20 year home. And so the question might be, well, why would I go and refinance right now if I'm gonna have a uh, long-term new mortgage here within you know, uh, 18 months or so? So the important thing there, when we're talking about refinancing, one of the most important things to consider is calculating your break-even point, right? So you might be um, saving some money in your monthly payment or however that looks, but there's gonna be closing costs anytime you close a mortgage. And so you've really gotta pay attention to that and sort of calculate it out. It's, it's, it's not a difficult calculation. Just take your closing costs, divide it by your monthly savings, and that's how many months you've gotta stay in that mortgage for you to ultimately break even. So if you do that calculation, even if you are uh, anticipating taking out a new mortgage on a new place, uh, you can still take advantage of, like in our case, lower interest rates uh, and things like that as long as you're calculating it. But uh, anyway, so we talked about Nick, you talked about why it's a good idea to refinance, right? To, to, to save money, essentially. Now, I mentioned a no cash out refi. Did you guys pull cash out and go spend it on a bunch of lavish things? Or how did you handle that opportunity to uh, either take or, or not take the equity out of your house? First off, I know the cash out refi is all the rage these days. So the, the whole premise is you refinance and you tap some of the equity in your home and you get that as cash and you basically create another loan essentially. So if, if my house is worth 300,000 and I have a mortgage of 150,000, I have equity of 150,000, I can use that equity in the form of a cash out refi to remodel my house or go on vacation or yada, yada, whatever. I've never really been a fan of that. You know, I don't view my house as an investment, as a source of cash. I just keep it separate. I mean, the real estate market is going to do what it's going to do. You know, there's some people that think because money's cheap, it's free, but I just don't like debt. I, I just never want to saddle myself with additional debt because I think that's a dangerous slope to be on. So, you know, I get why people do the cash out refi. Like if you have an investment opportunity or another project that's going to yield an outsized rate of return, that's fine. That's just not me. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the exact same boat. I've never been a fan of it. I've never done it. I don't anticipate that I would. I treat my home as its own unique thing. I look forward to eventually paying, paying it off. And I've thought of doing it a few times, but the rates are just so low right now that I can't really justify it. Uh, but one of the things that stands out to me is I've never talked to anybody that owned a home free and clear that just wanted to go take a mortgage out on it so that they could go buy things or invest it somewhere else. You know, there's always this sense that they say of strength and power and just ownership when you actually own it free and clear. So that's something that I want to focus on. And like you said, I mean, even in these types of rate in, or this rate environment, when you're talking 3% or depending on when you got it, even lower than that, 
there is opportunity elsewhere. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it given the, the elevated prices of things, but I think that you're playing with fire when you are constantly using your home as a piggy bank. You know, I've watched people that have done that, that bought a house, you know, 30 years ago for a hundred thousand bucks or less. And, you know, they still have a mortgage of $380,000 on it to this day because it's just been their source of money that they've used to kind of increase their quality of life. And that only works as long as house prices continue to do what they've been doing. If it moves back to a historical sort of 2 to 3% increase per, per year, you're going to see a lot of people sitting, you know, that were like the people that did this in 2006 and are just now getting out from underneath the, the burden after their house prices plummeted. So I, I'm going to start something here on this podcast because I, I really like the idea and it's called the backdoor brag scoreboard. So first, Eric says, I have enough liquid cash to pay off my mortgage. That's a backdoor brag. So he's he's first on the leaderboard. Keith says, I'm buying land in an affluent suburb. I'm going to build an estate. That's another backdoor brag. So Keith and Eric, you're tied for first, and we'll keep track as we go forward. I like that. Let's talk about how mortgage brokers, and again, I don't want to go off the rails here, but I have a disdain, and I think it's important to note, again, that they want you to do something. This is a transactional thing. They only get paid if Eric Stoffer does something. And I always get a, So I listen to a lot of sport talk radio, and I swear every other ad is a mortgage broker telling me rates are going to rise, so you need to act now before it's too late. And again, it just all goes back to it's a freaking marketing machine. It's a transactional business. And when it's a transactional business where there's no ongoing service, you, the consumer, need to compete on price. So it's important that you find someone that you like, that you trust. But if their rates are higher than the guy down the street, you would be foolish not to take the better deal. Absolutely, especially because two weeks after you close, you're going to get a notice or your first notice of which bank they sold your loan to anyways. And then in a couple more months, you're probably going to get another notice and see who they sold that to. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost become a commodity. And, and Keith, you were touching on closing costs, and that's one of the reasons why we've been able to refinance as a, you know, as a collective down even when it's only half a percentage lately is because those costs are just racing to zero right now. So Nick, you're spot on. It, it, you sh it doesn't matter if they have a cooler commercial or if it's your buddy that knows somebody who's in the industry, find the best deal because it doesn't matter at the end of the day. You're going to be told who you're making the payment to anyways. And we've touched on this repeatedly, right? Take responsibility for your own finances. Uh, a home purchase is oftentimes you know one of the largest assets that that generally people buy in their lifetime and you need to be aware of what's going on and nick you're talking about uh, these mortgage brokers we all know them we've got them in our family and our friend circle they pop out of nowhere and, and are constantly getting you to switch over with them but uh, throwing all the all the mortgage nomenclatures at you and talking about points and this and that and the other thing and so it's important to get educated and understand first what you're trying to accomplish and then go out there and actually uh, research and find the best rate that you can. You know, at the end of the day, it's a negotiation and, and there's lots of avenues uh, to secure one. So, uh, so work at it. Yes. And I've also noticed, so back to the sport talk radio thing with the ads, like at the end of those ads, they often lead with a teaser rate. Like they'll, they'll throw a rate so low, like mortgages at 2.2%. That's not the rate that you're going to get. I mean, oftentimes that's like their lowest stated rate, a 10 year mortgage, you know, a more traditional mortgage term would be 
15, 20, or 30 years, which rates usually, this is not always the case, but it's generally the case, the longer the term, the higher your rate because there's more risk to the lender. Like if I'm loaning you money for 30 years, that's more risky than me loaning Eric money for five years, okay? But the, the moral of the story is the rate that they lead with is designed to suck you in. The rate that you get is gonna be based upon your own income statement and balance sheet and credit score and family dynamic and income to debt ratio, yada, yada. So just keep that in mind as well. So you're, you're touching upon uh, a term there, Nick. Let's talk about that a little bit for the people listening and why understanding what the right term for you and your situation and how that is important, right? When we're talking about interest paid over the life of the loan, uh, interest rates uh, dependent on the term in which you get. You know, Eric and I talked about going down to a 15 year, Nick, you're at a, at a 20, but I would argue that most people out there have a 30 year and that's just the pretty standard way to do it. So how should people be thinking about terms and, and what's important when, when they are? The term is incredibly important because it's going to have a major impact on how much you actually pay for that house. You know, I, I believe people live on average something like seven years in a home before they move. But if you're always getting long-term rate uh, loans and, and paying very little on that and not paying them down, the most of the interest is charged at the beginning of the loan. That's just the way you can always look at the amortization schedule and see that. And so you're not gaining a lot of equity. You're relying on the market to go up. And if it is, then you can get a lot of equity. If you're not, then it's kind of, uh, you know, you're not going to get very far by always moving every few years. And, and one of the things that I think is important is making sure that you're buying the home that you can actually afford since most people buy based on payment amounts, which we've talked about before. It's, you're always going to be able to get a bigger house if you can afford $2,500 a month by extending that loan. And I've even seen places now that are talking about 40-year loans or think that they're, they're talking about uh, making that a standard deal, um, which all that's going to do is drive asset prices up because it brings that payment price down. So that's why I've always been a fan of the smaller term loans because it also keeps your, your budget a little bit more in line with what you could probably afford. And I'd just like to add to that too, when you're going in to refinance or to buy a new home or get a mortgage, we've touched on this in the past, you know, have your goals and know what it is that you're going to spend because these mortgage brokers will uh, attempt to walk you into bigger and higher purchases um, because of course they're they're based on a commission and, and so they'll do that. And so, so know going in how much that you can afford, what size home you wanna buy and don't allow yourself to get walked up into the next bigger house just because you're approved possibly an even higher interest rate for more money than you had anticipated. Yeah, Nick, you were going to say something. Yeah, so kind of piggybacking off Eric's comment, you know, a lot of this comes back to your budget. So what payment fits in your budget with the context of, you know, you need to understand that the, the further you go out in loan term, the more in interest that you're going to pay over the life of the loan. And one, one mental shortcut that I've, that I've heard of is, folks locking in a 30-year mortgage, which is the lowest payment. But if there's some room in their budget, they can actually pay more, right? So, you know, let's say your mortgage payment is is 2,500 bucks and you get a bonus at the end of the year. Instead of 2,500 bucks, you might decide to pay 7,000, thus turning your 30-year note over time into maybe a 29-year a note or a 28-year note. So, it's nice to have the flexibility of the lower payment and then the option to pay more if, if that's something that you would like to do. 
And then I have a question for the group too, because I've always, I've always thought about this. Have you ever met a mortgage broker that thinks real estate is frothy or it's a bad time to buy a house? I've never met a real estate agent or a mortgage broker that thinks that it's frothy or it's a bad time to buy a house. And I know quite a few of them. There's always a reason why prices are not going to go lower and now is the time to lock something in. Yeah, that's a, that's a funny point, Nick. Every time I bring my realtor that I've used over the years out of the woodwork to, to start looking at a new house or talking about selling mine, it's always a hut-hut from her perspective that now is the time and it's only going to get worse and I need to sell or I need to go buy now. It's interesting how no matter when I bring her back into the fold, it always seems to be that time. Well, I want to go back to something you were just touching on, Nick, because I had written this down myself because I wanted to bring it up. And I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you. I think the whole idea of taking a 30-year loan and acting like you're going to pay it off in 15 for most people is not a good idea because I don't believe that most people have the ability to stick to that plan. Now, if you want to... just be more flexible with it and you're not actually expecting to pay it off in 15 then and you just want the flexibility I can understand that like what you're the example you used if you want to just use extra bonuses here and there and kind of escalate it but in my opinion I don't think that most people have the this what's what's the word I'm looking for not the strength but just the structure in their budget their budget the 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 tenacity to stick to that sort of plan because when you all of a sudden realize it'd be really nice to go out and buy you know a new car or to get this but I need another $500 a month to make it work it seems pretty easy to just start knocking that mortgage payment that you've been paying down until all of a sudden now you've just added more debt to the system and you can only afford that 30 month or 30 year payment and Eric along that exact same vein I kind of want to circle back that's sort of how I feel about the cash out refinance when it's not a thoughtful cash out refinance. I hear so many people understanding their financial situations that hail the market for for increasing and the equity on their home has jumped into the hundreds of thousands of dollars and oh my gosh, they're rich and they're gonna pull it out and buy that new RV that they otherwise couldn't afford. And the interesting thing for me and for what I think for most people is their equity in their home might be their actual only savings. And it's happening not because of them, but because of the way that the market is going. And so to just tap into that because all of a sudden it's available and spend it without regard is not a good financial plan, I would say, for most people. It's uh, it's almost their, their only savings account. And, and to keep keep that you know, for a rainy day, things happen, or for an emergency, if you're not budgeting correctly, if you're not saving for an emergency fund, blowing through your only access to potential capital uh, to go spend frivolously uh, kind of irks me the wrong way. And so I would, I would warn people against that. Agreed. It's, it, it, it works when it works. It works when everything's going up, when the stock market's doing well, and real estate's going up and you're gaining equity and you know the pitch oftentimes is why would you buy this brand new car for a six-year loan term and pay you know six or seven hundred dollars a month when you can just roll it into your house and pay it off over the next 20 or 30 years because time value of money yada yada whatever the whatever the rationale is but again 
it, it's, it's that house of cards. It works if the wind doesn't blow hard. But all of a sudden, ta again, talk to anybody that was doing this in 2005, 2006, into 2007, and you know they're going to have a way different opinion about it because they there there are many people, like I said, that are just now getting to the point that they can get out from underneath their obnoxiously large mortgages because they just kept taking money out the entire time. Kind of switching gears here, how often should someone be checking mortgage rates? if they're thinking of refinancing or if they don't even know if they should refinance or not? Well, I think people should always be paying attention, right? There's kind of a general rule of thumb out there that if you can save a half or three quarters of a percentage point, it's time to start considering it. But it's not just that simple as following the market and where rates are, where they're going. It's thinking through your plan. How long are you going to be in the house? Are you gonna be able to cash flow this refinance after covering the closing costs? You know, it's a, it's a big picture deal. I think that it's prudent if people have the capacity to be paying attention always and capitalizing on, you know, lower interest rates whenever possible. Uh, but, but refinancing your home is never easy. It's never fast and it can be expensive. Now over the long run can reap many benefits. You just need to be thoughtful about it and always paying attention. Now let's talk about another thing that happens that is often pushed as a mortgage broker sales pitch and people take advantage of all the time extending your mortgage to lower your monthly payment so let's say you've had a 30-year mortgage and you've been paying on it for 10 11 12 years and all of a sudden you would like to save another thousand bucks a month in your monthly expenses so then you go back refinance it take out another 30-year loan in order to bring that mortgage payment down substantially, although you're going to increase the amount of interest you pay over the life of the loan, assuming interest rates haven't moved too much since the, since the first one. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think it kind of touches on this other idea that people have generally that carrying debt in the way of a mortgage is okay, that's not bad debt, right? That and, and student loans, that doesn't count towards your debt column. Well, it, it most certainly does. Uh, and so I think changing people's perspective on their mortgage, for instance, Eric, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, I think you're sort of uh, of the camp that would like to have no mortgage at some point. And, and I know that that seems like it's not shocking, but I think most people out there just assume they're always going to have a mortgage and they're going to take out another mortgage, as you were just saying, to cover their other mortgage, uh, to extend the loan and pay less. And they'll just have a mortgage until they die. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's a way that, you, that you've got to be thinking about it. Eric, you've talked about wanting to have your house paid off in the next 10 or 15 years completely and just own it outright. Yeah, that's right. I mean, our target right now is to, if we were going to stay in the house that we're in right now, which we'll, we'll see, you know, we've got another 10 years or so till our youngest goes off to college. But assuming we wanted to stay in this house our target is to have this house paid off about the time that they would be going to college. Uh, we, you know, we've already been setting aside through 529s and we should have a reasonable amount, but th that ability to get rid of the mortgage at that time of our lives is, is, a, is something that can really open up a lot of avenues. So it can allow us to help cash flow if we need, if, if they need some more assistance with college. Uh, it could mean that we could be talking about early retirement. We could be, there's just a lot of opportunity that comes, I think, when all of the sudden your entire monthly expenses goes down by $1,500, $2,000, $2,500, just immediately because you've gotten rid of that 
um, that 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 entire debt load. And then it just creates that extra cash that now you can do more investing, you can do more traveling, you, you can do whatever you want. Really, it's just that's our goal is just to get rid of it all. And then all of the money that comes into our house is just literally ours to do what we want with it. Well, and Keith, I don't know if this answers your question or not, but I think there's some secular winds blowing too. Like if you look at the interest rate complex over the last 10 years in the U.S., rates have been historically low. And that has incentivized people to borrow money. You know, I'm sure you've had friends that say money's cheap. I'm doing this, bro. I'm buying this big house. And we become very comfortable with debt. Like Eric and I saying that we don't like debt, we want to pay off our mortgage. That's the exception. That's certainly not the rule. But if you flip that, like my parents bought their first home paying a 13% interest note and that punishes borrowers and they wanted to pay off their house quickly. So I think there's this paradigm shift. There's some recency bias going on here. You know, real estate has been really good, especially in the Northwest and really all across the country combined with low rates. I mean, that, that just creates a perfect storm where we're all expecting our house to go up in value. We don't mind levering up because debt amplifies returns for better or worse. And again, recent history says it's been for better. So we've all just been complacent and, and embrace almost this, this debt complex. So again, I think context is important. So Nick, let's talk about your home then and the overall diversification of your portfolio and all of your assets. You're an experienced investment manager. Um, when you're thinking about putting your assets in different camps and, and diversifying your portfolios, your investment portfolios, how do you lump in a mortgage or paying down your home into your overall security and diversification of assets? Um, said another way, we've talked about people, uh, rates are so low, you should, you should pull money out of your refi and you could dump it into the market or you could do these other things. But from my perspective, um, my home is one singular asset that I keep over here sort of safe and help balance out my otherwise riskier investment uh, decisions over here. Do you have sort of an opinion on that generally? My home is an afterthought. It's a place to live. I'm not planning on moving. I mean, it's on my balance sheet. I know what it's roughly worth. You know, I check Zillow sometimes. Uh, and look at my mortgage balance, but but it really is an afterthought. Now, when I'm doing my estate plan, so my wife and I just took a trip, first trip away from the kids, I updated my estate plan in case I took a dirt nap, then I would need to let the beneficiaries know, uh, the executor of my estate know what my house is worth, what the balance is. So yeah, like I've got an idea, but as far as my home and the equity in my home, or the liability against my home and making other investment decisions, that just doesn't exist for me. Yeah, I'm in a similar camp with that. I, the only cross, well, first off, I, tr I don't treat my home as you know a long-term asset. It obviously is, but I need a place to live. So I, I've still got many years, especially with kids, where I, I probably wouldn't be downgrading. So it's not really gonna be the time that I'm gonna be capitalizing on any of the equity growth unless we decided to move to a much lower cost market, which at this point we don't have any plans to do so. Uh, the, only, the only crossover for me is sometimes if I'm trying to do, decide what I wanna do with you know, maybe a little bit of extra cash or, or something and figure out where it goes, 
and, and thinking about paying the house down, the only reason why I'm not paying it down any faster at this moment is just because how low the interest rates are. So, you know, if I was, if I was talking about a 7% mortgage and, and I know that any dollars I put into there, I'm basically getting a 7% return. And, you know, that'd be a different discussion. But when I'm talking about two and a quarter or something, it, it's, it, it's almost like nothing. It's not even beating inflation really at this point. And so there, I'm not incentivized to pay it off quicker. Um, at the, but that's the only crossover for me when I think about it as an investment or what I'm going to do with money as it pertains to the house. Eric, you've had some experience personally uh, walking someone through the idea of a reverse mortgage. Now, most people probably don't have any idea what that is. And, and a lot of uh, you know, certain generations of people uh, become predators of the uh, people that are peddling these mortgage products. Uh, talk to us about what a reverse mortgage is. Is it good? Is it bad? Is there any time that it's good? And just basically what it is. So in a nutshell, a reverse mortgage is exactly like it sounds. It's the opposite of paying a mortgage. You basically are getting paid the equity out of your home. So in, in theory, there are, there are probably extenuating circumstances where it might make sense, especially when you're talking about long-term care costs or something where, where you have somebody maybe towards end of life. Um, and I'm sure that there's other sort of estate planning where it might make a little bit of sense. But in general, what happens is, you know, let's say you've owned a home and you, and you own it free and clear or, or mostly clear and you've got a big pile of equity in it. When you take a reverse mortgage out, the bank essentially is going to pay you that equity out on a monthly, quarterly, annually base, annual basis. Uh, but the reason why they suck is because you're paying massive fees and there's all kinds of stuff attached to it. So, you know, there, there's a lot of other opportunities to tap into that money, but the, the sales pitch is how would you like to get rid of your mortgage? How would you like to, you know, get money out of your house? So there are probably fringe cases where it makes sense, but in general, for most people, it's something that you should be very wary of. And if you're approached or you sit down with your Wells Fargo or Bank of America banker and they start pushing that sort of thing, you really, really, really better understand what you're getting into because there is a situation where at the end of that, you just literally have to move out of your house and now you don't own it, have any equity and the bank owns your house. So the bank is just buying the house from you slowly over time. And depending on the deal, it could actually go pretty quickly. Well, and just a note on the reverse mortgage thing, I, I agree with those comments, but if you think about a reverse mortgage salesperson, this is almost a Goldilocks environment for them, right? Most Americans, their biggest asset is their house. Most houses have gone up in value. Interest rates are super low, meaning they can't generate meaningful investment income off of their portfolio. So they're starved for income. I mean, this is ripe for one, the institute for for financial institutions to improve their offerings and really market the crap out of it. But also it's also right also it's ripe for people to get duped. So to 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 your comments, Eric, I, I actually talked to a reverse mortgage person. I had a client kind of send me some documentation and wanted to ask about it. And I I really don't know the ins and outs of of a of a reverse mortgage, but but I've heard the offerings have gotten a lot better. So ten years ago when they first rolled out into the market they were awful riddled with fees but they have gotten a bit better so 
you know, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. It, it's, you know, as everybody's entered the market, and especially the things you're touching on, it's had to get more competitive. My message to anybody is just don't do this on a whim because it might sound enticing to get, you know, an $1,800 check every month instead of paying an $1,800 check. But there is a lot of factors that go into it. And depending on who you're dealing with, you know, whatever, just make sure that you understand it. And they are... They do have a habit of targeting people, especially in the older generation. So if your parents are talking about it and they're not very financially savvy, definitely get involved and make sure that you understand the ins and outs of what it is because it there are scenarios where, you know, mom could end up just not having a house anymore. So, and then all the equity's gone. Yeah, speaking about educating yourself and not acting on a whim, let's wrap this up talking about fixed versus variable costs and why people should be careful uh, when considering a variable interest rate option uh, and what exactly that means. To me, when I'm dealing with an asset like my home, right, it houses my family, I have three kids, like that's very important for me to be a stable environment. And I would not like if my mortgage payment is jumping around month to month. And that's what happens with a variable note, right? So variable meaning the rate that you're paying is not fixed. So there's been a lot of talk about interest rates going up. I'm really not buying into that train of thought and that's a different conversation, but but let's assume rates do go up and let's say your mortgage payment now is 2000 a month and let's say interest rates double. Well, next month my mortgage payment which was 2000 could be 5000 let's say. Now I'm using ex- I'm using extremes to make a point, but that could blow up your budget. You know, when you're thinking about getting your finances dialed in and what you can save versus what you can spend, that's a pretty sizable jump for a, a pretty important asset, uh, you know, if you have a family. So I, to me, I like to set my watch to, to something that I need to be stable. And for me, that's a fixed mortgage payment, meaning my rate does not change from month to month or from year to year. Yeah, and you, you really open yourself up to a lot more risk in that. Now, granted, on one side, you usually get a smaller interest rate. And when we were dealing with rates in the sevens and eights and, and, and that kind of range, the difference could be pretty sizable. But in today's market, it's going to be very minimal what the delta is between one and another. And you just, if the perfect storm of bad things happen and you're on something like a variable interest rate loan, you could run into a situation where your equity goes down and now you, you're in a negative equity position and you're unable to refinance re, refinance as interest rates go up. Because in general, as interest rates go up, everything all being equal, house prices go down because the cost of making the payments is, is accelerated and goes up. And so you could end up in a scenario where interest rates start running away and going back up at a sizable amount you could end up not being able to afford your new mortgage payment at, while at the same time not having enough equity to refinance out of it. And so you really kind of expose yourself to an extra layer of risk if things go the other way. Well, let me ask you guys a question then. Why do people get walked into variable interest rate mortgages? You know, one theory might be to hedge against falling rates, right? But wouldn't a better strategy, a safer strategy, just be to possibly refinance if that were to happen and and keep a fixed interest rate? Or what is it that that walks people into making that decision? 
Well, I think Eric hit it on the head. I think your your rate that you get when you choose a variable note is lower. And someone that is stretching to buy a house that they really can't afford might be tempted to use a variable note if rates are low and they've been stable for some time just because you can get more house. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that live on the edge, right? So there, there's people that they, they use, it was big in the early 2000s, but we even see it now where it's real estate oftentimes, especially if you're an investor, is all about leverage. So if I can squeak out an extra hundred bucks a month, then I can apply it over here. And if I do that over four or five, and so, you know, that's where the arms come in. And, and, and if you're of the mentality that everything always goes up and I'll always be able to refinance, then, you know, it seems like a more reasonable thing to do. But I think Nick's point is probably the most accurate where you want, you just, you can only get approved for this amount or, or whatever it is, or you can only, you're buying at the very edge of your budget. Um, and so you need that extra hundred or 200 bucks to come off the, off the payment. But it's definitely, it, it's a, exposes you to more risk. All right, so we've learned that shorter terms equals less interest paid over the life of the loan. Uh, your lowest fixed rate interest rate uh, is, is maybe the best option most of the time. And try not to dip into the equity uh, just to go spend it on something that you otherwise couldn't afford. Am I missing anything, guys? How do we want to wrap this up? And what are the important takeaways here when we're talking about term? Uh, and uh, and fixed versus variable interest rates here. No, I think all that's good, Keith. I would just add, uh, do, do your homework before you engage a mortgage broker and know, and know what you're getting into. Don't let them tell you what you can afford or what's best for you. Make sure you outline it in the context of your budget. Talk with your spouse about term and payments that you can afford and be realistic about your target home price. Eric talks a lot about payments and getting duped into lower monthly payments or focusing on the payment amount. Focus on the asset that you're buying, your total interest costs over the life of the loan. And again, make sure you understand what you're getting into because mortgage brokers and real estate agents get paid for you to do something, not necessarily your outcome. Thanks guys. I think that was all real practical advice. So there you have it. Mortgages and refinancing are big decisions, so get educated. Join us on the next Proper Sense podcast, and as always, guys, follow us at propersense.com.